Hello, welcome to another Use of Force. This week, our 51st week, which is a route that covers different 9-11 memorials. The Use of Force instance that was along our route took place in Mott Haven in the Bronx in 2017. And Jesse's going to read the Use of Force report now. So the Use of Force report calls out that it was in the 40th precinct on December 5th, 2017, and involved a male Hispanic 69-year-old person. On December 5th, 2017, at approximately 0410 hours, uniformed officers assigned to the emergency service unit executed a search warrant in regard to a firearms and narcotics investigation in the confines of the 40th precinct. While the officers were executing the warrant, a male subject confronted the officers with a machete. The officers issued verbal commands to drop the weapon. The suspect continued to advance with the machete in his right hand, and an officer discharged a firearm at the subject, striking him. The subject was removed to Lincoln Hospital and pronounced deceased at 0453 hours. Officers recovered a 29-inch silver machete. Forensic toxicology screening indicated the presence of alcohol in the deceased's blood. Okay, so the reporting on this is interesting for me in that our documentation that we had set up for the entire year, we have a little bit of details of the incident, and the details for this incident were drawn from the very first article on the case. Mm. And what makes it interesting is that when reading the first article that is available, the first reporting, it really reads like they had no choice, that this was a kind of a, a crazy incident where the police were in the right. Mm. And it isn't too different from what the use of force report just described. Uh, a gentleman, 69-year-old Mario Sanabria, was shot in an apartment on the third floor of a building in Mott Haven just after 4.15. The police had a no-knock warrant because mm. they were looking to do a narcotics sting. And they were looking for... Sanabria's uh, nephew, I believe, mm. is what it was. Yes, his 38-year-old nephew. And some of the, it's, it's not a terribly long article, but some of the quotes include, uh, you know, they are very dangerous when you do these things. And this is a police officer referring to a no-knock warrant. And... He says, I believe he would have plenty of time to react to the police and drop the knife, but he just seemed like he wanted to fight them. Mm. And the other gentleman in the apartment was a 92-year-old man that Sanabria took care of, provided uh, the uh, like medical services for in exchange for living there mm. for free, for like rent. Okay. Uh, the 92-year-old man was taken to the hospital for treatment because of the shock of what was going on. Mm. 
and there was that's that's pretty much it. I think it says he was believed to be Sanabria's father, and I don't believe he is Sanabria's father because mm. unless they have different last names and yeah. he is the father, the, the gentleman's name is Natalio Condi. And so the 38-year-old nephew was not in the house. Mm. And the extent of the drugs that they found, well, I guess this would be, now we're getting into subsequent articles. That's about, you know, the, the two-foot blade was the, the thing that was focused on in the initial right. article. There's a picture of a very large blade. I mean, yeah. it's a basically a sword. Yeah. And it says that they were looking for drugs and guns. And they didn't find any of that. Okay. So then you start getting into some of the other articles. And then there's this uh, really good article that came out from the New York Times. And I'd say good insofar as it provides a lot of information that was not provided the day of or the day after. Right. And... Including in that information was that the the machete was Mr. Condi's, the 92-year-old, hmm. that he didn't even believe that Mr. Sanabria knew that it was in the home. It was a souvenir from when uh, Mr. Condi was in the Caribbean. I don't know if he was hmm. he served in the army in the Caribbean. But it was, it was his knife. It was not Sanabria's knife. Okay. And that the last time that Mr. Condi saw Mr. Sanabria, Mario, before he took cover, he did not see a machete in the man's hand. Oh, wow. And it, it says his friend's hand. So it was not, okay. definitively not his father. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, he, the article saying he believed it's believed to be his father. I don't. I mean, I guess that's kind of a minor thing. I don't know why you would report that, but it's not. Yeah. It's not crazy. So, again, they were looking for his nephew, Mario's nephew, not him. When they searched the apartment, they didn't find any drugs. They didn't find any weapons. They found a, a joint, like a roach, like a the the remnants of a, a weed cigarette. Okay. And a pocket knife. That's all they found. And then this New York Times article managed to get a hold of the uh, the nephew, yeah, uh, Miguel Condi, and he's he's saying he has two misdemeanor arrests for for marijuana possession, which not uncommon. Yeah. At this, honestly, and. You know, he works in construction. He says, you know, I make $1,000 a week clean after taxes. There's no reason for me to sell drugs. And he said that when the police finally did catch up to him, yeah. they were looking for a completely different gentleman. Oh, my gosh. They were looking for somebody named Daniel Condi. Wow. That had a different birthday than his. Wow. So they did. They, the police did manage to find him later in the day in another section of town, but it was. It, it seems to be a case of mistaken identity. Wow. Now, yeah, Mr. Sanabria Mario mm -hmm. 
he was in the military. He was a law and order guy. He always held his family to the standards of law and order. And so there isn't really any reason to believe that he was even a, a person that had an antagonistic relationship with the cops. Wow. This is just 4.15 in the morning. Sure. And somebody somebody's is, breaking into your home. And he may or may not have had the machete even on hand. It may have just been something that the police found. Wow. It's not really definitively stated. But, yeah. it, I mean, it's a, it's a no-knock situation. So people, you know, he's, you know, defending himself in, in whatever respect. If, he's, if he has the knife in his hand, if he doesn't have the knife in his hand. He's yeah. defending himself and defending his, you know, charge, his 92-year-old. Sure, the person that he's, yeah, meant to be taken care of. Right. But, he, yeah, he was an officer up until 1990 in the Honduran army. Oh, wow. In, and then he moved to the Bronx. He was, uh, you know, a working man until three years prior when he had a, a modest retirement and then kind of just did the same thing every day, or, you know, he would have a coffee and two tamales. He'd hang out at a bodega, buy some lottery tickets, mm -hmm. go over with his family, his sisters for supper once a, a week. Um, you know, didn't have, he, he was, he drank, but it was always like a happy drinker, right. you know, and, and that's, that's about his story. Mm. And as far as the actual uh, act of carrying this out by the police. So you mentioned earlier that it was the emergency service unit right. that carried out the operation. However, though it was ultimately carried out by the emergency service unit, it was the operation was started by the strategic response group Okay. And the strategic response group is a rapid reaction force where that's deployed during periods of civil unrest, terrorist incidents, and other citywide emergencies. Oh my gosh. So Which this is not. Right. And that it, it had only been established two years prior at that point. Wow. It was established in twenty fifteen. Why a a unit that is used for large scale emergencies ended up spearheading a low-level drug and gun investigation is not something that is really elaborated on. Yeah. As far as what we could discover. Yeah, and I mean, that's definitely a, something that I think would be worth looking into more. Yes. Yeah. So from there, there's I still not uh, as much information you as one would like, given how many uh, questions are, arise from that New York Times article. Of, right. of course, we've, we've seen this uh, a number of times. There is a, a lawsuit yeah. that uh, was started a couple of months later. Uh, it was against the city of New York and uh, Ruben Leon, who was the uh, officer that fired the shot, okay. as well as a number of officers that are listed in the case that were presumably there at the time. Right. And that, that though that started in, I guess, early 2018, because this occurred in 2017 at the end of the year, 
that is still unresolved. Wow. The last that I was able to see anything about was in May 22nd of 2019, uh, where I guess the the law firm in question, Ronemius and Valensky, mm-hmm. perhaps I'm saying that wrong, they there's like a, a press release talking about you know the the incident kind of bringing up the details that were related in the New York Times article and they put a 50 million dollar lawsuit to the city uh, for damages claims including Mario Sanabria's wrongful death at the hands of law enforcement officials Miguel Condi's wrongful arrest that's the 38 year old nephew mm. And then emotional damages sought by Natalio Condi, who believed he was being attacked by armed intruders as a result of officers entering the apartment to execute an incorrect search warrant. Right. And I mean, I don't, I don't even know how this would factor into a lawsuit, but ultimately his caregiver was murdered. I don't, you know, yeah. how, how does the family figure sure. out how no, to, uh, you know, handle that situation? Yeah. So... At the end of this article in 2019, it says the court. This case is still working its way through the court system, and and that's where it is now. I mean that you know that was May 2019. Nine months later, thereabouts is when the pandemic started. Yeah. And uh, who knows how these cases have been going since the pandemic is. Yeah, has I, hit. I think it's all been like on hold until recently. But, I mean. I, I didn't see any activism surrounding this event. That doesn't mean it, it hasn't been happening. Right. I, but there wasn't anything that we saw when we looked this up. But circling all the way back to what I said at the beginning, it's when I, you know, I read the article and I read the blurb that we had in our spreadsheet, which was uh, drawn from the initial December 5th article. And it just made me think a lot about how, you know, these things, even guilty or, you know, innocent until proven guilty, these things are written in a way that it's just so tilted to immediately draw conclusions. You know, you yeah. get a you get a kind of blurry photo of a extremely long knife slash sword. Right. And it kind of turns off your brain a little bit. Yeah. No, I mean, when it's when you're presented with this scary person was killed by our heroes, the police, when that's the narrative that you're presented, it takes a fair amount of effort to push back against that and not to just think, oh, okay, I guess that's what happened, you know, good thing. But to take, I mean, you know, it doesn't take that long actually to just think, is this the way I wanna think about this? Is this correct? Is this the full story? Who's telling me this story? But um, it, it does take a it takes a little bit at least to like push back against it and just think about it from a different perspective. And yeah, I mean now like it's so clear to me there's so many things wrong here. What like of course if someone's performing a no knock warrant, even you know regardless of whether or not he had the machete like 
he should have had the machete. Like if he knew where that weapon was, everyone would go grab that. If I heard people breaking into our house, I mean, I have a plan for that. I have, I don't have a machete here, but like I know what I would grab and it would be some kind of weapon to protect myself. You live in a city. I would, I imagine that everybody has sort of a plan for if you hear the door rattling in the middle of the night or a large commotion, how are you going to protect yourself and the other people in your home? Yeah. So at the very least, that's what he was doing. And you would think that the officers, I mean, to me, I think this no-knock warrant thing is a whole, is insane. I mean, it doesn't seem like a smart plan. It seems like these, you're going to be getting yourself into a ton of these situations. But you would also think that the officers would be ready for that of course you're breaking into someone's home they don't know you're coming you're not presenting yourself you're not like letting them know who is breaking into the home you don't think that this is you don't think people are going to come to the door with some kind of weapon yeah and then it's just okay for them to defend themselves but it's not okay for citizens to defend themselves right like it's crazy Yeah. So there's one more article that was written, I guess, six weeks after. So after the New York Times article. Mm -hmm. And it's an opinion piece. It's not really uh, more than that. I don't think it adds any actual facts. Okay. It it just... uh, said, you know, another view of the NYPD Bronx shooting. And it has a quote from the lawyer of the Sanabria family, which Robert Valinsky says, you know, five officers can't figure out a better way to take down a guy who's 69 years old and five foot four and 160 without shooting him in the chest. And then it goes on to say, even worse, there's been no indignation or an apology from either de Blasio or or O'Neill, who said only that the NYPD and Bronx DA are looking into it. Contrast that with the outrage over the 2014 chokehold death of Eric Garner, or with O'Neill and de Blasio's statements after the 2016 fatal police shooting of Deborah Danner, an emotionally disturbed black woman, after cops said she swung a bat at a sergeant. So, you know, and it concludes, why is a frightened man holding a machete in his dark apartment different from a disturbed woman who swung a bat at a sergeant? Probably because Sanabria, a poor Honduran immigrant, has no political constituency. Now, that's obviously, again, I stated as an opinion uh, yeah. article, but I, it, it is telling that you're speaking about the idea of somebody having a, a bat in their home or a plan. Yeah. And and you as a, a white woman is probably going to get a lot more difference than people of color. Yeah. And this gentleman that I don't know how much English he spoke. I don't yeah. know what his community is. The 92-year-old man he takes care of and the people at the bodega. And I, there is just as much reason for there to be a huge uproar about this yeah absolutely and there there should be and i don't i i hope that this does get further uh, illumination yeah i mean there is a you know i guess that also makes me think like 
just how many people know about it, you know, like the Eric Garner case was filmed and it was on the street and it was during the day and that was a big part of that. And the other case that you brought up where the woman had a bat, that also sounds like it was in public and there's just, there's a difference between something happening also on the street when there's people around potentially versus at four o'clock in the morning in someone's doorway. So not only like the people that were involved, but also just like the time and like this seems like something that was maybe just happened in the middle of the night and then maybe his immediate community knew knows about it but who like you know it just passed through the news cycle somehow without people picking up on it which is is crazy I mean yeah this should be outrage I mean we just this last year everyone knows about Breonna Taylor and in some ways this is similar to that yeah, I think Where, it's... I mean, the biggest the biggest difference is that in the Brianna Taylor case, her, the man that was in her apartment was shooting at the officers coming in also because he thought someone was breaking into his home. But like, you know, here we have someone that has a knife and isn't potentially maybe has a knife. You know, it's like there are some major differences, but I feel like there should be there should be outrage about this. This person wasn't even, you know, I agree with that, that opinion piece that shouldn't there be another way to subdue someone that like just has a sharp blade and is an older, smaller man. I think it's a combination of their, the point in time that this happened, which was still within the bounds of Eric Garner's incident. Yeah. As well as there being a larger historical precedent for black activism in this country. Yeah. And also the George Floyd incident consolidating a lot of disparate movements into one kind of galvanizing call for reform. Yeah. Whereas if this incident had happened in the past year, I think there would have been more uproar that's probably true that's probably true the the timing and everything about it just it didn't quite happen at a time that would capture the energy of people to speak up about it right but you know that also makes me think like we are finding out about it right now and so as this is still in trial or, you know, somehow in the court system, um, maybe this is an opportunity. We're speaking about it now, and maybe this is an opportunity to try and find connections to people that have louder, more public voices um, to share this story. Yeah. That, you know, a lot of the cases we talk about on here, we leave it off feeling somewhat conflicted over you know how you know, not that not that we ever think that it's okay that someone died 
at the hands of the police. Sometimes it is a little bit more complicated and nuanced, and I would say that this incident isn't really complicated or nuanced. It speaks to a lot of, like, everything about this is just wrong. I think that... And that's my opinion, and that's, right. you know, I don't think that the no-knock warrant thing should be... Ha that seems, like, really wrong. And then also, if you are going to get a no-knock warrant, make sure it's for the right person. Right. I think that the amount of information that exists currently, or the amount of information that we were able to find, and there may be a delta there, but the the information that we have currently leaves so many really important unanswered questions that I would feel a lot better about if the police were pursuing them in the name of transparency. Right. And it doesn't seem like there's any motivation to do that. And I think the reason that O'Neill or de Blasio wouldn't make a statement after something like this is truly a political calculus. The yeah. idea that this thing happened, it's probably wrong, and I am not going to spend any of my political capital on trying to figure it out because I have all these other things to deal with. Yeah. And it's important for us as citizens of this city to recognize our role in bringing these sorts of things to the forefront so that we get proper answers and change the system and hold the system accountable, not just for Mario, but also for subsequent people. Yeah, I mean, for everyone that's already had something like this happen to them and so that hopefully this cannot happen in the future. Okay, so that's all for this week. As with every week, if you heard this and you know more about this or would like to know more about this, we always welcome hearing from people so that we can further understand each one of these use of force instances. Until next time, take care. Bye.